And welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and I thank you so much for being with us here on the program today as we are set to um, basically give you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. We are here on Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday morning, Monday mornings at 1 a.m., Wednesdays at 9 a.m. for a special edition of Tell Me Your Story. And we stream, li- stream live at those times at richarddugan.com. We are podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, many other locations on the Internet, and we're on YouTube. And we hope that you'll select Notify. If not, subscribe, Notify. Uh, so that you'll be notified the next time a new conversation has been posted to uh, these various locations. Uh, by the way, um, just as a point of reference, folks, so we are fast approaching our 15th anniversary here on Tell Me Your Story. And we're also fast approaching almost, oh man, 100,000 listens, if you will, on our podcasts since January 1 of 2018. Now, I don't know what that number really means. I mean, yeah, it's great. It's a wonderful milestone, especially like if you have a car. I have had two cars now. I don't have them now that actually I was able to watch them turn over to 100,000. So I'm watching this closely as this vehicle um, uh, works its way up that hill and uh, then goes careening down the other side. It's very exciting. And on YouTube, we have a whopping 121 subscribers. A wh- and we've, we've been up there since uh, July of 2020. So not a whole lot. But again, I'm not doing this for the numbers. I'm doing this to get this information out. And today's program is no exception. I also want to remind you that if you'd like to support what we're doing financially, we have a PayPal account. It's there for your security as well as ours. And uh, when you uh, go there to support us, if you certainly can, we would appreciate it. The email address you want to put in there is... Richard at RichardDugan.com. That's Richard at RichardDugan.com. And one final thing that I mention every single program is we ask that you take time during this, the decade of perfect vision, the 2020s, and go within and listen to that still small voice. Uh, we're going to kind of get into that today, but uh, we'll see see where, where this program goes because today's program is going to be very interesting, I think, not just for me, but for you too, I hope, uh, because it's it's something that, you know what, we don't think about. We just don't think about how uh, other children learn. That is the title of the, the book by my guest, Cornelius Grove, and uh, we're going to dive into that here in just a moment. But uh, Cornelius, first of all, thank you so much for being with us here today. Thank you, Richard. I'm happy to be with you and your listeners. I'm speaking to all of you from Brooklyn, New York. Well, we are uh, happy that you are speaking to us, as, regardless <laughs> from of wherever, where you are. Right? Oh, from wherever, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's uh, it is it is most um, it is extraordinary. And I I be honest with you, I have thought about this over and over and over again. Um, and we sort of discussed this uh, to some degree, and we're going to get into the the, the meat uh, of this uh, this book and the work that you have done. I have found it uh, ever so frustrating as I get older and older, having gone through the public school system here in this country, uh, Phoenix to be exact, Phoenix, Arizona. We have a certain arrogance, we Americans, that um, if you're not from here 
or if you're somewhere else other than here and you have an idea that might help us, we don't want to hear it because we're Americans and we'll figure it out for ourselves and we're not going to learn from nobody else but ourselves. And I just sit here going, what a waste of time and energy. You know, I mean, so, and I'm not saying that that Einstein, Einstein, Edison should have consulted anybody from elsewhere around the world uh, how to build the light bulb, how to make it work. 900 and over, not over 990 ways he found it didn't work. Could he have saved himself any trouble whatsoever if maybe he had sought out other people who were kind of working on the same thing? Or uh, is it that arrogance is I'm going to find it and I'm going to get the patent and I'm going to make the money and I'm going to be famous. And I'm sitting here doing these shows, uh, uh, Cornelius, and I'm I'm going, I'm one guy who is beholden to thousands, thousands of people. That's how I got here to talk to you. Um, so I kind of want to start there, but I don't want to leave it there because we want to get into this aspect of how other children learn in other parts of the world that you have uh, you have studied. You haven't necessarily been there amongst these folks, but you've done the research uh, that actually kind of opens our eyes a little bit, doesn't it? Well, uh, I sure think so. And uh, apropos of what you were just saying a few minutes ago, let me say that I think there's an, you know, I in this book, um, quite unlike my previous books, <clears throat> I have looked at cultures which um, are defined generally as traditional. Uh, another word that I could have used and, <clears throat> excuse me, didn't use very often in the book was indigenous. Uh-huh. Fifty years ago, um, most people without blushing would have referred to them as primitive or somewhere between primitive and modern, you know, sort of beginning the path up to the higher level where we are, right? Um, and I think that it's, it's you, you say that people, uh, Americans are reluctant to accept uh, possibly useful ideas from other people. And I, I agree with that. I think there's an extra hurdle here as we seem to be looking backward. We're looking at an earlier way of living, an earlier way of socializing children, uh, the tra- a traditional way uh, from five different areas of the world. And uh, I, it's my sense that people don't quite know what to do with that because this, the assumption is, well, we've, you know, we've been through that territory over the past dozens of thousands of years, and why would we want to look back? But the interesting thing is that when we look back, we're looking at original ways of thinking about children and how we raise them and how we socialize them. By the way, I just would like to throw in here that the word education, we have come to use the word education Mm -hmm. to mean schooling. Yeah. Education actually means socialization. Schooling in some societies, such as our own, is an aspect of socialization. But how a child uh, comes out of the womb and, you know, a few years later is really beginning to master 
the norms and values and the subtleties and the knowledge of the culture in which he's, he or she is being raised. This is what we're talking about. And it doesn't, even in our society, it doesn't all come from schools. And I would probably be happy to say that it doesn't mostly come from schools. And I would actually say, and I think that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> uh, and, and the reason I say that is because I think that what is going on right now is as a great, how do I put this? Uh, there, there's a paradox regarding education in this country. Now, what it, it really reared its ugly head, if you will, um, when we went through the pandemic and we went through the pandemic and the uh, the powers that be were saying, got to shut things down. I'm sorry, the kids can't go to work and to school and so forth. Got to stay, stay separate and on and on and on and on. We could not, we couldn't participate in education as you have defined it, not you personally. Well, um, we couldn't participate we, in schooling. Right. We couldn't participate in schooling. Um, but, the thing that got me was it wasn't but maybe six months to a year later that the parents and so forth and administrators said, hey, we got to get these kids back in school or 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 what have you. And yet they were probably the same people who were criticizing the educational system in this country, how bad it was. And I, I thought, wait a minute. Wait, I don't understand. You're saying that the educational system is bad, but you want to send your kids back. I, I'm I'm not clear as to the logic here. It doesn't make sense well, to me. Well, let me say this: uh, I have I have written three other books for Roman and Littlefield about education. That is to say, about schooling, about mm-hmm. what happens in classrooms or what does not happen in classrooms, or what could happen better in classrooms. And I hope uh, somewhere along the way, I just get to mention those books. Yes, please. But but. I want to say that this book, How Other Children Learn, is about what goes on with parents and children in societies where there are no schools. So that doesn't, as if I stick with How Other Children Learn, that doesn't prepare me very well to discuss the fact that, you know, you were talking about during the pandemic and then the same people who were criticizing were saying, let's get them back. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I'm looking in this book, I wanted to do something completely different. I wanted to see what's going on in societies where there aren't any schools or in which schools are just beginning to come become a factor. So those are the five societies that I looked at. And to give uh, your readers and you an idea of what we're talking about here, let me tell you which are the five societies. Yeah, please. Let me say this first. They all are on different uh, continents of the world. And I'm very, very happy about that. But I did not set out to find five societies so that one would be on each continent. I had to do it another way because um, – Anthropologists, so I am reliant on the work of anthropologists of childhood. Anthropology of childhood is a field or a subfield of anthropology that hasn't been around uh, all that long. I guess we're, I, I, the first chapter of this book that we're talking about today, I, 
I, I, I look at the person who arguably is the first anthropologist of childhood, and your readers may or may not know much about her, but they've probably heard about her, and that's Margaret Mead. Mm-hmm. Margaret Mead, the anthropologist, was arguably the first anthropologist of childhood. So that's only, gee, that's barely 100 years ago. Uh, she was doing her dissertation 100 years ago. Um, so... Um, so the five, so the five societies that I looked at were societies where their, oh, that was, was my video off. Mm. Okay. Sorry. There you go. Um, the five societies are, uh, those in which a great, a, a substantial amount of work had been, had already been done looking at children and parents, looking at child socialization, looking at children's education, if you will, without schooling, education without schooling. Uh, Okay, so the five societies are, first of all, the Aka hunter-gatherers of Central Africa. Uh, They have absolutely no relation to schooling, zero, none. Uh, The second one is are the Quechua herders of the high Andes. This is quite a fascinating group. Well, they're all fascinating to me, but mm-hmm. I particularly was drawn to this group. They just, I don't know, I, I, I don't want to start rhapsodizing about the Quechua, but they just seem special people to me somehow. And they live their entire lives at between 12,000 and 16,000 feet. And that is not a very hospitable place, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. The third group will be familiar, I think, to all of your listeners, and that's the Navajo of our own Southwest. Quite a lot of anthropological study has been done of the Navajo, so much so that there used to be a joke among anthropologists that the typical Navajo family consisted of a mother, a father, grandparents, children, and an anthropologist. That's not literally true, but there was an awful lot of anthropologists around in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, The fourth society are the village Arabs of the Levant. I'm aware that not everyone is familiar with the term Levant, but if you can picture in your mind's eye where uh, Israel, uh, Palestine, Syria, Lebanon, that end of the Mediterranean, that's, that's really the heart of the Levant. And so the the village Arabs of the Levant, they live on the edge of the desert, many of them at the time that the uh, anthropological work was being done, um, lived in houses of some kind. But they were descended uh, in very recent terms from the nomads of, of, the, um, of the desert. Uh, and I'm blocking right now on the name of those nomads. It'll come back to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so the values and the child-rearing patterns that they exhibit were those that were, uh, you know, in, in being used over thousands of years by desert wanderers who lived out their entire lives in the desert. And the fifth group was the um, 
Hindu villagers of India. Now, India has just landed something on the moon and made a big splash, and, and we are very familiar with our very powerful in computers, et cetera, et cetera. But, and so we think of them as, as either modern or industrialized, uh, very sophisticated. But the matter of fact is there are many, many relatively small traditional indigenous uh, people in India. They are Indians, but they belong to a variety of groups and tribes. And so uh, quite a lot of anthropological work has been done among them, and I relied on that anthropological work. So five groups from five different continents, all either completely traditional like the Aka hunter-gatherers uh, and really the Quechua, uh, and to some extent, the Navajo, the village Arabs, and the um, and the um, Hindu Indian villagers of India, um, their big school is beginning to come in there. But you have a situation where virtually no adult has been to school, and only some children go to school, mm. mainly boys. Mm. <laughs> Well, I will tell you that I think that uh, this conversation is going to get uh, very interesting as we continue. We are talking with with Dr. Uh, Cornelius uh, Cornelius Grove, and, uh, you know, he referenced uh, uh, some additional books that I definitely want to make sure we do mention throughout the program. One of them is The Aptitude Myth, and I, I would love to spend another program talking about that as far as the description revealing the deep historical origins of America's belief uh, that children's inborn abilities, rather than their effort and determination, are largely responsible for their level of school performance. That's well, a fascinating story. That's yeah. a history book. I didn't rely on anthropologists for that book. I re- relied on historians. Okay. Well, I tell you what, we are going to set up a time and a place once again here on Zoom to talk to you about that whole thing because there are a lot of myths and I, I, and these are minor things from my perspective. Another one of those things that perplexes me. Uh, you hear that you, you heard this term. You don't, I don't hear it so much anymore today, but I did when I was a kid growing up back in the sixties and seventies in school about uh, what they referred to as the three R's, the three R's. And I, I, I remember hearing that. And then of course they would say what they are reading, writing and arithmetic. And I'm going, wait, what three R's? There are no three R's. Reading is one. <laughs> Writing starts with a W and arithmetic starts with an A. Now, if they're referring to the R in the word. Well, in the sound of the word. Yeah, yeah in the sound Reading, of the word. All right. Writing arithmetic. Yeah, I can get that. But, uh, uh, you know, we won't go down that uh, silly path. What we will do <laughs> is go down this silly path to tell people that you are listening to tell me your story. <laughs> I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and I thank you so much for uh, being with us here on the program to uh, talk about uh, many of the uh, the things that that people are uh, concerned about, and especially. And I and I'm going to do my utmost, uh, uh, Cornelius, Doctor Cornelius Grover Grove, uh, to remember the difference between school and education. School is. We'll call it an in, is is the institution. Education has to do, as you have, uh, I think, uh, maybe more accurately defined it for us, has to do with socialization. And oh, uh, I yeah. guess what we're finding out is that socialization is 
very important. And for kids to have been kept out of the buildings, the school buildings, for the period of time they were, they say, oh, this is a lost generation. I'm sitting here going, really? you telling me that we Americans, we can't overcome this kind of stuff? I mean, this it goes back to the same arrogance, you know? Or that it's it's like uh, you talked about, uh, like, for example, what we'll talk about uh, in regarding uh, these myths, um, their inborn abilities versus their determination. Are we determined that this is going to be a lost generation or are we determined that it's not because it doesn't have to be? I mean, that's one of the things that I find so fascinating. You know, we we're supposedly uh, so uh, uh, gung ho and, you know, we can we can do anything here in America, which we can. I mean, we send a man to the moon. We've many um, uh, people have climbed uh, human beings in particular have climbed uh, Mount Everest, you know, gone to the depths of the sea. Look at James Cameron went down into the Mariana Trench. You know, that takes some chutzpah, you know. Um, or some would say cojones, <laughs> but let me ask you in regards to getting back to, um, the subject at hand in terms of how other children learn, I want to ask you in particular, uh, about, you know, you mentioned, of course, the, the Aka hunter gatherers, the, uh, uh, Kichwa, Navajo Indians, uh, the nomads and the Hindus. Now I have a connection with, the Navajo only from the standpoint of my DNA, which I was really surprised. I never wanted to have anything to do with, uh, pardon me, one of the Native Americans, because I did not want to, I didn't want to impose. They seem like a very sort of private group of people, regardless of the tribe. And then it turns out, well, you're not imposing because you're part of that group. As a matter of fact, uh, I'm connected to uh, Native tribes from North Central and South America. So I can go ahead and do some research here. I can do some, uh, I can be curious and so on and so forth. So um, when it comes to like, um, because the Navajo are the closest to us here in America, I mean, we have the opportunity. We can, we can do some study if you want. We can do some talking, communicating with uh, Navajo and find out, you know, what they're all about. Um, in terms of teaching their children, in terms of the socialization versus the schooling, uh, what what did you uncover in regards to the uh, parenting by persuasion growing up among the Navajo of uh, the United States and Southwest? Well, um, the Navajo of the five groups that I looked at, and I say I looked at, once again, I'm reliant on the work of uh, uh, anthropologist of childhood. This is the one in which the, the parents came the closest to parents and the community came the closest to deliberately teaching their children. And this is done uh, certainly one very important way in which this is done is that is during uh, nighttime campfires when stories are told and not just stories are told, but uh, one characteristic of the Navajo is they don't just tell the story at these events, which are, I think a lot of people attend uh, adults attend as well as children, but it's all really for the benefit of the children as they 
to help them absorb the values and the norms of how Navajos go through life and build relationships and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, but not, not only are the stories told, but the moral is made very, very clear. The interesting thing, uh, and, and that is a characteristic of, of the way they uh, ensure that their children grow up to be responsible uh, members of the community. Uh, and I do want to say more about responsibility. Richard, you'll remember that one of the chapters in my book is only about responsibility because there's some real insights to gain from looking at how children in, in these traditional cultures come to, to really accept responsibility for their entire family. Mm-hmm. Uh, in most other cultures, uh, the way children learn is quite astonishing, and anthropologists and archaeologists generally assume that the way this is the way they can go and be in these communities and carry out what's known as participant observation research um, it is, and that what they're seeing and what they're learning and the patterns they're uh, putting together to to tell people like me. Uh, or anybody who wants to read their materials, is that um, once a child is weaned, the ch- the parents, and this is to, true to some extent with the Navajos as well, the parents no longer assume that they are responsible for raising the children. Now, this is rather extraordinary, I think, uh, certainly to me as an American, uh, becoming familiar with these anthropological reports. Mm-hmm. And I suspect to many of people who are listening to us right now that because Americans really pull out all the stops when it comes to having children and figuring out what to do with them. This was one of the biggest findings from my two and a half years that it took me to, to write this book. And I came up with a little saying about this, and it was that um, American parents um, parent as much as possible. Traditional parents parent as little as possible. In other words, we we take 24-7 responsibility for our children. We really don't ask much from them. We are rather giving things to them, giving experiences to them, spending time with them, setting up places for them to go where they can play and be safe, and uh, just basically constructing a world uh, in which children grow up the parents are certainly looking over their shoulder. I don't mean to say they're constructing this world and walking away from it. This is one of the real big differences between traditional and modern uh, parents in that tra- modern parents are take, certainly a modern American parents, take very, very seriously that they are responsible for their child's Safety. We we work hard. We give thought to keeping our children away from assumed danger, from iniquity, 
from stress, even from things like fattening foods. You know, I mean, we are always, always looking over their shoulder, making sure they're having good experiences and, and are, are advancing in, in more or less the way they should and so forth. We don't see this in traditional cultures. <coughs> when a child is born and until he, is we- he or she is weaned, which is quite, uh, quite a bit later in traditional cultures, up, up, but many go until a year and a half or even two years, some even longer than that. Once the child is weaned, the parents say, not really our responsibility. It, I guess it is in, in a larger sense, but this 24-7 day-to-day constructing experiences for children doesn't happen. So who does raise the children? How does this, how does this come about? Well, the children in most traditional societies are raised by other children. Mm-hmm. Two things happen and they can both happen at once. One is that the child is raised by the next oldest child, a sibling. Mm-hmm. Girls preferred, but not necessarily girls. Not necessarily siblings, could be a cousin. Now, remember, we're looking here in all cases at, tra- at traditional families are extended families. They are large groups of related people who are, are very much in communication with each other. They are, they are one group. They are not as they, as you would have in America, you have a group of individuals who are very conscious of their individualism and their ability to make their own decisions, especially also as children get older, they begin to, to be allowed that. But um, they, they identify with each other and they hang together. But really what I want is the most important thing. In a traditional society with an extended family, uh, the the other t- the term that would be the uh, analog of individualism is communitarianism, sometimes also called collectivism. So that the people of that family of, fa- of those families are are they see themselves as one, not as a group of individuals who self who identify with each other, mm-hmm. but as one group. So that the important thing is it's what we need. So children are raised to develop the attitude not of what I need is what I want, but rather what we need is what I want. This is a huge difference from families here, most families here in the United States. Oh my gosh. It's, it's so different from, it's so different from uh, just in general, our society at large, but uh, I'll add another element to it too uh, here in America, since we're talking about the Navajos in particular is that uh, as I read, for example, I was born and raised uh, Catholic uh, and I grew up in that environment and I certainly, uh, uh, had, a, had a, 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 I went to catechism and I learned all that stuff and I went to confirmation and communion and so forth. And then in 19, uh, what was it? 1980, I think it was or 81, 81, I started working for a Christian radio station. 
And it was, and I say this uh, seriously, it was the best education I was ever paid for because it taught me not just about, um, and I refer to them as sects. Uh, it not only taught me about comparative religions, it taught me about sociology, psychology, political science, and, and the list goes on. And then I started listening to uh, some of the things they were saying, and I'm going, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense from what I read, because I've read the Bible. I've read it uh, you know, from the beginning to the end. I've, I've gone through the whole thing, uh, whether I read it or I listened to the audio and so forth. I remember the uh, very first version I had was read by Ephraim Zimbalis Jr., that's how oh. far back I go. Anyway, and so I started asking questions. And one of the things that I remember reading was that constantly throughout, especially the New Testament, but even in the Old Testament, there is a sense that I got that, and this was okay with me, and it's okay with me today. There is no individualism. Yeah, you may be a person in a body, but you are part of the body. You are part of the community, the yes. body of Christ, if you will. And that's and, where the term communitarianism comes from. And I think that's a great word. I'm going to start using that as opposed to what really sets people ablaze in this country. Uh, if you're living in a communal organization or group or city or what have you, somebody wants to refer to it as communism. And it, that has, of course, a lot of, of baggage with it. I actually came to a realization. I kind of gave it another name, but I actually like yours better. I referred to it as interdependentism. Well, that's a word that anthropologists, uh, they, they contrast very commonly independence and interdependence. That's yeah. a common, that's a common, yeah. you know, this or that, you know, yeah. this, these are basic orientations that people have that they learn from their earliest years. Yeah. Um, we're going to continue uh, talking about all of this as we do with our very special guest. I'm really enjoying this. Uh, Dr. Uh, Corn, uh, Dr. Um, I, why am I forgetting your name all of a sudden? Well, you got the first, you got the first syllable there and it's, it's significant that one of my favorite vegetables is corn. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for your uh, it's Cornelius Grove, ladies and gentlemen, and his book is entitled How Other Children Learn. And I'm one of those children and you're listening to Tell Me Your Story. We are talking with uh, Cornelius uh, Grove, and uh, there's so much to unpack in all of this. And we could spend the program going through each of the five, which would be fascinating to do. Um, but uh, I think that the, the main um, the main emphasis that you give us, at least at this particular point, through your study, your research and PhD and all of your education, uh, actually, I should rephrase that. I'm sorry. All of your schooling. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, or, or, or I could say, as you know, y'all, you're a book of learning, you know. It is uh, book learning. Uh, book is learning. Uh, yeah. I hope you. I hope you have your ciphering down because we're going to do that at the end of the show. No, um, this this aspect of this, the, the, you know, this was the thing that struck me in this country uh, when when COVID hit. On the one hand, on the one hand, you have everybody wanting to exercise what they refer to as their First Amendment rights. And then, of course, in the Constitution, the preamble, uh, life, liberty, uh, and the pursuit of By the way, Richard, yes. that's an example of individualism. That's right. Exactly. That's an example of individualism. 
But then when I go reading the ancient wisdom teachings, of which the Bible is one, what I read is there are no individuals. We are part of the whole. We are all, like I said earlier, and it's been said, we are part of the body, whatever body you wish to to refer to. And that on a, from a spiritual or metaphysical level, the ancient wisdom teachings say that we once were with the one and where we're going back to the one. Now, my personal consternation was, then what the heck are we doing here with this whole individualism thing? But getting back to my point in spiritual, in the spiritual context, there are no individuals. And yet we hear people who complain about how this group is taking away their rights and that group is taking away their liberties and that this group is taking away whatever it is they think they're taking away. And when I uh, get to that point, I say, you know how you talk about individualism and life and liberty and freedom and all this stuff? From my perspective, there's not, it's, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm saying from the spiritual or metaphysical perspective, it's irrelevant. Well, from an anthropological perspective, it's a it's a very it's very character it's a very characteristic value of Americans and other societies that are highly individualistic, such as I'm thinking of, for example, Australia is maybe one good example there, and not the only one. Um, so. Uh, I'm telling you, if people are interested in what families, extended families, how they, how they act, what they value, what their norms are, and how they socialize or educate children, we're not talking about schooling, we're talking about socialization or education, mm-hmm. then honestly, you could do worse than to read my book because... <laughs> Okay. Listen, that's every one of the five cultures, the five societies, the Aka, the Quechua, the Navajo, the uh, Hindu, the nomads, or the the the, the, um, the ones whose ancestors, the recent ancestors were nomads, and the village and the villagers of India. Mm-hmm. They are all communitarian. Their val their fundamental value is communitarian, and this just makes so many differences, including in how they raise their children. Uh, let me let me throw in here because I just there's a point I don't want to miss here in in looking at the really big differences between us and traditional people when it comes to children. I'm going to say something that I think some people will find shocking or reprehensible. Americans do not need their children. How dare (gasps) you? (laughs) We do not need our children. Now, I am thinking in practical terms. Yes. Not thinking about loving children. I said... I didn't say Americans don't need to love their children or Americans don't love their children or even Americans don't like their children. I said Americans don't need their children. Now, how does this become such an important thing for me? It's because I spent two and a half years reading and writing about societies in which 
families, extended families, actually need their children. And one of the characteristics of these societies is that it's difficult, it's challenging, it's time-consuming in a major way for them to put food in their mouths. Now, I, 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 no I wanna, supermarkets. Right. I want to drop in here real quick because I did not think that I would, in this conversation, bring up my father. Okay. Okay. But you know, it's the second time. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. It is. My father, my father worked five, uh, five days a week, eight hours a day. My mother also worked too. She was a nurse. But my father, in his working and then going to night school to get his computer programming degree in the 70s uh in his later years in his 80s actually uh, uh late middle late 80s we had we're having a conversation and my father said that he did not feel that he contributed to his children in the way that my mother did he gave my mother all the credit and the reality was that the, at his memorial and it was not synchronized. All of us concurred individually as a group of two. The theme of that memorial was, Dad, we would not be the people we are if it hadn't been for you. Uh, so when you talk about and you're going down this list of of the reasons why uh, they don't, we don't the, the parents don't need or Americans in this case don't need their children. You are not referring to the children that exist today, you're talking about, we don't need to add to the population. Define that for me. Well, uh, that's not precisely what we have in mind. And let me, let me build the contrast here because this is something, you know, you started off the program saying we're, we're going to think about things we don't usually think about. Right. And one way to, especially when it comes to the socialization of children, raising children and family relationships, one real good way to start thinking about these things that we don't usually think about is to look somebody who is different in very substantial ways involving norms and values and mindsets. And there's a very good way to do that is to read about these five societies. Mm -hmm. um, what because, because these societies live in a situation, they're much closer to nature than we are, meaning that they interact personally with nature virtually every day. Uh -huh. Certainly, well, I think you could say that all five of these, nature is in terms of uh, getting water, getting food, mm -hmm. raising crops, hunting animals, uh, gathering native plants, uh, and so forth. They need to spend a lot of time doing these things because if they don't, they will starve. Right. We do not need to do those things. And this is why traditional people actually need their children. They need their children to contribute to their sustenance. So that child... Uh, is encouraged, not necessarily taught, that child is encouraged to watch and learn and begin to contribute to the family's gathering or raising or hunting or however they do it of food 
as soon as they want to. And the result is that the, the, and, and here's where I can begin to get into responsibility because from, from as soon as a child can toddle forward, parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles in these societies will begin to expect them to do something that's practically useful. So mm-hmm. what can a toddler do in a traditional society that would, that would, you know, assist that that is useful for the family? Mm-hmm. Well, a child that can toddle, you get, they get up in the morning in many, many, many of these families, if they're going to eat a hot, what we would call breakfast, they need to build a fire. What do you need to build a fire? You need wood. You need sticks. You need twigs. A toddler is entirely capable of going over there, picking up a few twigs or sticks, and bringing them back for the fire. Mm -hmm. That is a practical contribution by a child who really isn't able to talk yet, but is beginning to get into the habit of thinking that I, along with everyone else here, is responsible for our well-being. Does grandpa grandpa over there is having trouble walking? He needs a cup of water. A toddler can go fetch a cup of water and take it to grandpa. Mm. One of the most touching stories that I recall from uh, my work on this book uh, comes from uh, the Quechua. So the anthropologist who studied the Quechua, this is somebody who I've gotten to know since I started working on this book. Um, when she first visited the Quechua, this is, this is back in the, uh, in the mid, in the early nineties, I believe. Uh, when she first went to visit to the Quechua, she, I'm not quite sure how well she knew the language, but she was at, at probably 13 or 14,000 feet in altitude. She was a guest in a home. Now, home, you know, a hut mm-hmm. sitting on the ground floor. Uh, open fire and so forth, right? Uh, there was a three-year-old girl in that family without being prompted by her parents or aunts and uncles. The girl, this young girl, three years old, went and got two cups of water, brought them back, handed one to the anthropologist, a complete stranger at this point, kept one for ourselves, raised her cup, and gave the traditional Quechua uh, greeting or other statement when people drink together. When I say drink, not necessarily alcohol, right? Mm-hmm. We're talking about they are partaking of food together. Three years old, she's helping to welcome the guests to the home mm-hmm. without being prompted. Think of that. When did an American child do anything like this? <laughs> Without being prompted, exactly, exactly. Without being prompted. Uh, so th- this is an this is just a story that is you know wow. cemented in my mind of the expectation from the earliest days. Once a child can toddle, as I say, that the child will contribute to the welfare of the family. 
It's not what I want. It's what we need. We need to, to welcome this guest into our home. This is our norm. We, we are welcoming to strangers. I will assist in this because this is what my family as a group does. Yeah. I find it also interesting, uh, that, uh, in this conversation about these different cultures, these different societies and the way that the children are raised, uh, what they are exposed to as they grow up. In this case, the toddler, obviously, at a very early age, saw very what was early. going on and yeah. was, in a manner of speaking, mimicking, but also had that that basic understanding that I'm part of this group, so I need to participate in this that I've been watching for the last, I don't know, maybe 12 months or 18, whatever the, the age. And I need to participate because I am a part of this, this clan, this group, this society. I think this is hard for Americans to wrap their mind around mainly because we're individualists. We're just not accustomed to thinking that way. Yeah. I'm not saying that we don't recognize what family is. I'm not saying we don't identify with our mother, our father, our siblings, and so and our children and our grandparents and so forth. I'm saying that we do that within us within an understanding that everybody is an individual and they're capable of making up their own minds and doing what's best for them. Yeah. That's you know, not how these communitarian people think. No, no, they don't. I, 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 again, I'm going to go back to what you mentioned, uh, uh, certainly about, uh, the, the Indians, the, the Hindu, uh, element there, uh, and her, certainly the accomplishment they have just recently made in the news as far as, uh, as far as space travel and so forth. Right. Uh, and it, it's, it's, it's like, okay, I hear this phrase about America, several phrases about America, greatest country in the world. All right. I'm not going to argue with that, um, that, that we're number one. I will argue with that. And to the point, who says that we have to be number one? Why can't India be number one? Why can't, uh, who, who, uh, oh, this is another element. Uh, you have a fairly, fairly uh, advanced society of in, in Russia, the government. And what did they do? They crashed on the moon. All right. They crashed and the Indians got it right uh, in a manner of speaking. But when when you start looking at at the different countries around this world, I think that we, we have a superiority complex in America. Uh, and, and, and it's like if you're running a race, somebody is always going to come in first, may not be the same person every race, but there's going to be someone come in second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh. And what what is wrong with because that just means and even if you're number one, that there's more room for improvement. You know, it's 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 a frustration for me when I hear this. Uh, I've had conversations, for example, with my brother. We are on opposite ends of the political spectrum, but he is still my brother, always will be. I don't it doesn't matter what he believes. And I'm not saying because he's wrong. No, he's not wrong. This was something else I wanted to uh, throw in here in terms of this, because um, there is a, uh, a saying that says all the choices that we've made up to this point have uh, 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 brought us right here. As a matter of fact, choices I made as a child have brought me right here to you to talk here on this program. It sounds weird, but that's hindsight being 2020. Now, 
All the choices that I make from this point forward will determine where I will be in the future. But someone added to that, yes, however, all of the choices that you make from this point forward, just as you did in the past, are going to be based upon your perception of what you think the future will be. And I have to wonder if these, in this case, these five other cultures that you have studied, if if they... Because this is something that that I'm perplexed about when I see, for example, documentaries on the native peoples in the in the jungles in South America, like in the Brazilian rainforest and so forth, what's left of them. Uh, They don't have technology. They don't need it and they don't want it because they don't even know that it exists and they're living their lives just fine. And it's like, who says that you have to bring the modern conveniences to uh, any of these groups? I think that's one of the things that's that I'm curious about your perspective in terms of what you have found uh, well, in these groups. Well, this is what you're talking about is sometimes referred to by anthropologists as the missionary mentality. Hmm. Uh, we we uh, find it easy to think of ourselves as kind of the, at the top of the heap of civilization and Others are not quite at our level yet, and and you know that's uh, at at the bottom of the heap. This is what the term primitive that we don't use anymore, thank goodness. But as I said very early in the beginning, these mm-hmm. five cultures, especially let's say the Aka or the Quechua, would fifty years ago, without anybody feeling very bad about it, would have been described as primitive. Mm-hmm. In other words, they're just not up to our level. But uh, I'm telling you, if you look at if you look at how they live their lives and how we live our lives, and um, <laughs> a number of people have done this. Not just anthropologists. I've read a, read a book recently in which people are just you know looking looking at how things were many thousands and thousands of years ago, how how people lived and so forth, and and what they're saying is, you know what? When you live in a forest or when you live in a desert and you don't have any modern conveniences, you don't, you know, there's no education, uh, there are no roads, there's no electricity, there's no running water, on and on. There's no air conditioning. You have to deal with summer. You have to deal with winter. You have to deal with rain, with snow, Mm -hmm. with floods. You have to find, you have to think about your food every single day. Where is the next bite coming from? And all of that. Yeah. Um, forgot the point I was going to make. Um, having when, to do, having to do with, uh, basically, uh, you know, well, we've got it. We're better off than they are. Yeah. Well, I, oh, I know what it was. Thank you. Mm-hmm. They actually need to know more than we do. They need skills that are learned uh, very gradually by children watching and imitating and trial and error and then trying to fit in. They, they have to learn poisonous plants from, like, let's take mushrooms, for example. You eat some mushrooms, you're, you're toast, right? Uh, how do you tell them apart? Children learn to do this in these societies. Those, those that hunt and gather and among which, you know, mushrooms are, are part of their food. They have to know how to deal, how to deal with, with 
wild animals, uh, not only how to avoid the dangerous ones, but how to find them, how to trap them, how to kill them. There is an immense amount of knowledge and skill that they need to do to live their lives. Mm -hmm. And we have made our ancestors, our recent ancestors, have made things easier and easier and easier from us. We have, do I want cold water? I just go out to the fridge and put this cup under some <laughs> spigot and I have cold water. Do I need hot water? I just go into the next room and turn a spigot. Boom, I've got hot water. Mm -hmm. Easy, easy, modern conveniences. Uh, it's, we actually have a very easy life compared to the life that they live. And when you begin to realize the depth of this difference, your your respect, I just speak for myself, the respect I feel for traditional people living a traditional lifestyle uh, in close communication in nature where they have to find or raise uh, or hunt all their food, you just get a lot of respect for them. And you say, what have we lost on our way to gaining our capability to go to the moon? Yeah. I'm not saying that that's simple, but you have specialists who are doing that. Mm -hmm. You and I don't need to go. We don't need to know how to go to the moon. Right. We, we need. We admire that they have do this, and we just know that that's incredible. But in our daily lives, regardless, even even the even the scientists who have taken us to the moon, when they come home in the evening, their life is really easy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hey, need some food? Go to the fridge. Need more food? Just step out, get in your car, and go to the supermarket where you have thousands of things to choose from. Yeah. And you just decide which one you like best or which one has the most beautiful, you know, label or however you make your decisions. Mm -hmm. In the forest, if you pick up the wrong thing, you could get terribly sick. Yeah. You have well, to know that. You yourself mm -hmm. have to know that. Children learn this by the time they're 10 years old. Yeah. Well, let me let me just jump in real quick here. I, I want to add something to that, another layer that I'd love for you to respond to. Uh, but I want to first let our listeners know you're listening to Dr. Cornelius Grove, and I'm Richard Dugan, and this is Tell Me Your Story. We are talking here on the program about, uh, again, I told you this was going to be an interesting program, and especially for me, howotherchildrenlearn.info is the website. We'll be linked to that website, howchildrenlearn.info. How, uh, how, let me try that one again. How other children learn dot info. That's the website. There we go. Um, I want to throw another layer on, if I may. Uh, and that is this. What you said before, what you've been saying about the comparisons between our way of life and we'll refer to the traditional uh, cultures that we're, that you also our ancestors. These are uh, our and, ancestors. and our ancestors. Yes. Yes, indeed. Um, but here's here's my other layer I want to throw on there. We are making the assumption that our life is easier and theirs is harder when that is just the way they live. It's neither easy nor hard. It's just the way it is. There's no dualism here. Yes. So I have to wonder, because that's one of the reasons why. We we go into what you referred to earlier that uh, the the missionary mentality, if you will. Yeah, yeah. We so, want to we want them that. to improve their lives, and they didn't think they had needed any improvement. Yeah, you know they don't need self help. They don't need therapists. Okay, uh, as far as their medicine is concerned, I interviewed a uh, 
a Chumash Indian here in Santa Barbara, California. And um, we got to talking in the program. I said, can you talk a little bit about the medicine? Well, the, when you say medicine for an Indian culture, and we're talking uh, uh, North, Central, South American Indian, you're not talking about, you know, a, you know, dealing with a boo-boo, a broken leg, a spleen that needs to come out, etc. Not exclusively. You are talking more about the, we'll call them the subtle energies or the spiritual realm, the metaphysical aspects. And one of the things that I'd heard about here in Santa Barbara, they were going through a drought, and this was before we moved here in 2006. Uh, they, they, they talked about how they had gotten together some, some of the Chumash and they did a rain dance. And guess what happened? It rained. And he says, yeah, you can do that, but you have to remember that for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. If you get rain, then somebody else may not. And it goes to two points I want to throw in here real quick. And I'm, I'm going to keep them very brief. The first one is uh, unintended consequences. The second point is just because we can, does that mean we should? Well, I think in the United States, people quite often think if since we can, we really ought to do it. Let's see if we can do it. And this is this is uh, one of the explanations, I think, for uh, artificial intelligence. Or even cloning. Uh, we were watching a program about how uh, people with dogs in particular, their dog died, but they still had some of their hair, which I guess had follicles, had DNA. And they, they created a new one. And I'm going... But it's not the same dog. And I don't know what the unintended consequences of cloning my beautiful white, uh, white, uh, uh, shepherd, husky mix, beautiful girl named Makushla. Then that was a real dog I, I had up until a couple of years ago when we had to put her down. She was a one of a kind. I don't want to clone her, you know, let her rest. I mean, you know, in a manner of speaking. Uh, and then there are many other things as well. AI is only uh, the tip of the iceberg in terms of just because we can, does that mean we should? Um, let me ask another question before we uh, uh, bring our conversation um, rapidly to a close. And I got to tell you, for me, this has just been uh, fascinating. Um, I just, I love these kinds of conversations. What about the spiritual slash metaphysical elements of these five different cultures and its influence in, I want to say, a, a constructive way to the society as a whole uh, in, 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 in terms of what you found. Did they have that and, and so forth? And we're not talking doctrine and dogma here. Yeah, <clears throat> I, I would put it a different way. Um, I would rather think of it this way. Uh, as people in these different societies, including our own ancestors, uh, we're talking many, many thousands of years ago, 12,000, 10,000, 8,000, 6,000, and so forth years ago. And where they live in different parts of the world. They have different environmental influences. They have different ecological challenges. They have different histories. And gradually out of this comes 
their culture, their culture being their values, what is really important to them, what what causes them to choose A instead of B. The study, for me, the study of anthropology is above all about different, different value systems that different people have their values, their mindsets, their attitudes, how they build relationships or don't, and so forth and so on, and, and how, they, how they work together in a communitarian attitude to deal with whatever environmental challenges that they have to face in order to put food in their mouths every day. Yeah. I would, my approach to religion is that out of, out of this work over thousands of years of constructing a culture and a value system, one of the things that comes out of that is a religion or an ideology or a spiritual idea. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm looking for different words here mm-hmm. uh, because it's not necessarily "quote unquote" religion. Right? Philosophy. Uh, How's philosophy? Philosophy. Is? Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> that. That. That supports who they need to be to get along in this environment mm-hmm. so that it's not the religion that's so much causing the culture and the values, but the values and the culture that is giving rise to the, to the religion, the philosophy, the spiritualism, whatever words are appropriate here. Yeah. And you know, when you talk about, um, uh, communitarianism uh i think i i reflect on my family growing up now there were six of us kids and two parents first marriage for both only marriage for both father passing away uh, at the uh, ripe old age of 91 having been married for 66 years almost 66 years <laughs> um and yet the one thing that comes out of that this whole period of time of my 63 years of life in that community, that small community, is that we all wanted what was best for each other, for one, and that at the same time, we also let each of us go, and my parents have, uh, have uh, spoken of this uh, quite extensively, they let us go our own way. But at the same time, we are always there for each other. My, my mother, for example, she just had uh, uh, cataract surgery, which is kind of ironic because I had cataract surgery coming into this world. <laughs> but I was talking with her just last night as of this conversation and finding out how she's doing. Oh, doing great. And I'm going to do the other eye next, probably in a couple, three, four weeks once the this eye heals up and everything. But I'm doing great. I can see really well now. It's much better. And then we got into conversations about other things and, you know, and the one thing that struck me and has always struck me, I've never gotten over this. And this is in a good way. At the end of the conversation, I would say, okay, well, mom, we'll talk to you later. I love you. And she responds with not, I love you, Richard, but I love you, son. And that it's like, wow. Okay, I I don't know why that hits me the way that it does in a, in again a positive way, but it I I think in our from our conversation what I get now from that is she recognizes and acknowledges that I'm a member of this community. If she'd said my name, then there I'm an individual. 
But when she said son, because she has two of them, um, it, it's like, okay, I'm rec- you are a member of this clan, of this tribe, if you will. Well, it's- what you're expressing here is some of the characteristics of a communitarian yeah. uh, extended family. Uh, they go far beyond this, of course, but, the, you know, their relationships in, in, in some of these, in many of these communitarian extended families, people are never addressed with their name. Yeah. You would be older son. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is true in many cultures. The families refer to people by the relationship, uncle, mother, father, older son, younger son, uh, a cousin, and you know, and so forth. The, the, these relationships are tight. They have a lot of meaning, and so we see some of that in what she said, and and in your relationship with her. Mm. Ladies and gentlemen, I uh, this is one of those interviews that I I hate to bring to an end. <laughs> I really do because there is so much more to talk about, and I, I I'm not going to lie to you. Um, uh, I'm I. I almost have a lump in my throat. I mean, I just, because this, this stuff just touches me to the core, but I don't want to be remiss uh, about letting you folks know that um, Cornville uh, Groves books, 2013, the aptitude myth. We are going to have you back to talk about that one. We're also going to have you back to talk about the drive to learn as well as a mirror for America. Oh my God. God, we need to look in the mirror. I'm sorry, <laughs> Michael Jackson had it right. You know, the man in the mirror or woman in the mirror. We need to start taking a look. And of course, his latest release, How Other Children Learn. And just as a reminder, ladies and gentlemen, this is Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, along with um, our very special guest, again, the author of, quite honestly, I think a fascinating read for you, uh, it is called How Other Children Learn. And, best... and I want to throw in something here. It's oh, not a very long book. It's no, not no, a no. big, book. No. Uh, Cornelius Grove is my guest. How Other Children Learn is the uh, uh, is the book. The website, howotherchildrenlearn.info, as I said before, will be uh, linked to us. And I am going to ask you three final questions. I ask all of my guests. Um. And I really appreciate the time you've given us, and I'm looking forward to having you back again to continue this conversation. Uh, I may have to bring tissues next time because a lot of this stuff just, it's really, <laughs> I, I, I have a different view of relationships, not just now, but even before. Uh, for example, my mother has shared with me about the marriage that she and my father had. She had his back, he had hers, but she didn't do his work for him. If he wanted to go to computer school, Go to computer school, do your thing as an individual. Okay. And she went off and did her thing as an individual, which gave me, oh, I got to tell you, when she told me that last night, as well as in the interview I did about eight years ago with them, uh, it just, uh, it welled up in me. I'm going, wow, that's, I wish I had that. I really do. I really do. Um, Before I ask you those three final questions and before I go any further, I want to remind you. I want to thank you for listening to and watching Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, where we are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. We are here on Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m. and Wednesdays at 9 a.m. That's our special edition. And we're streaming live at those times at richarddugan.com. 
We podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, and a whole bunch of other locations. Just put in Google, tell me your story, Richard Dugan. We're also on YouTube where you can watch these interviews. We ask that if you can support us financially, we'd be great. we would be so grateful. Hey, we'll take prayers, positive energy. Uh, we'll take it all. And we thank you, thank you, thank you for whatever you are able to send our way. And then also spend some time going within and listening to that still small voice. With all of that said, we're now going to ask our very special guest here on the program, those three final questions, which over the years, the 15 years we've been on the air um, have changed a little bit, but the focus has always been the same. This question has always been there. Who is Cornelius Grove? Cornelius Grove is uh, an ethnologist of education who is an ethnologist, somebody who looks at different cultures and compares and contrasts them. And uh, I, I don't have time to tell a story here, but while I was in graduate school, it suddenly it began to occur to me that what I was interested in was not people as individuals, but people in groups, how people relate to one another in their groups. That was something I was naturally interested in. I cannot give any account for why that is true. It's, you know, I can't give any account for why I like corn. <laughs> but, you know, I do. So that's maybe that's something that's inborn, perhaps. For the second question, what is your life's purpose? My life's purpose has changed uh, a number of times over the years, but now it is to uh, enable ordinary people to uh, to know about, appreciate, and understand the practical implications of what anthropologists discover in their professional work. Anthropologists have a great deal of insight to share, but nobody reads anthropology. It's scholarly, you know, but I read it and I interpret it for the general public. That's what my books are about. And my final question, I always ask this and paraphrase by, or or, um, preface by saying, I hope you get the movie reference. (laughs) What, What was your best day? (laughs) <laughs> oh wow! What was my best day? Uh, I'm I'm 82 years old, so I've got a lot of days to <laughs> choose from. Uh, I don't know. I gotta gotta go through a lot of life. I I I, I don't have a ready answer for that one. I I'm not sure. I I basically have had a, a satisfying life. Uh, so. Uh, not too many really bad days and quite a lot of good ones. Yep. But, and I, and I, by the way, I've noticed my three questions have nothing to do with communitarianism. <laughs> that's a good point. So good by point. the time we get to our 15th anniversary in just a few weeks, I will probably, uh, I may change those questions to incorporate that concept. I think that would be a fascinating way to, uh, talk to our guests but uh, cornelius i can't thank you enough for being a part of this program i will be getting back to you uh, right, to great. have you back on to talk about these other areas these other books that you have written and thank you again for being a part of this program my pleasure thank you
And I thank you for listening to and watching Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. And until our next broadcast, podcast, videocast, love to lol, Jeanette, I'm still listening. Dad, I know you're happy now. And to my friend Doug, my best friend of 53 years, I'll see you down the road.